is said with truth that every building is constructed stone by stone, and the same may be said of knowledge, extracted and compiled by many learned men, each of whom builds upon the works of those who preceded him. George R. R. Martin. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare Advancement Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening, and for those of you who are joining me for the first time, thank you as well. So, uh, this is the second episode of my kind of Halloween uh, fantasy, sci-fi, horror type uh, episodes. Um, did my first one last week on the uh, world of Glorantha, which is of course a kind of a fantasy role-playing setting for a few different uh, tabletop uh, role-playing games as well as video games. Uh, this week we will be covering The World of Ice and Fire, uh, written by George R. R. Martin. And uh, just off the bat, I want to say to anyone who has not read the books, watched either Game of Thrones or the currently airing House of the Dragon, you do not have to worry about spoilers. Um, what I am going to be going over in this episode is just kind of a general breakdown of the world itself, uh, locations, and kind of the, um, the prehistory of what is discussed about in the novels and novellas and the TV show. So don't worry about spoilers. I'm not going to give anything away. So if you haven't read or watched anything and you're planning on it, um, you know, don't don't panic. You can you can listen to this episode. And if you haven't haven't had any interest in doing either of those things, maybe this episode will give you that kind of spark. So um, yeah. So let's go ahead and cover uh, jump into. Um, the world and kind of its uh, creation, for lack of a better term. Uh, now, the first book in the uh, Game of Thrones universe was, of course, Game of Thrones, uh, and it was published in 1996. Um, it was written by George R. R. Martin, uh, and he, for those of you that don't know, uh, is uh, is the author, and he's also uh, involved in a number of other projects um, when it comes to uh, writing. He did a lot of work uh, in television, uh, did some movie stuff, as well as a number of um, uh, fantasy, sci-fi, short stories, and novels. Uh, Game of Thrones is, of course, his most popular, his most famous, uh, but he, he does other things. He edits as well. He does screenwriting, uh, and he he's got his hands in a lot of uh, a lot of pies. So that has caused some consternation among some fans, but uh, we'll kind of get into that in just a moment. But his uh, full name is George Raymond Richard Martin, uh, and he was born on September twentieth, nineteen forty-eight. Now. Uh, he is, I believe, from New Jersey. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's New Jersey. Um, he is a fan of, the, I believe, the New York Giants. Uh, if you read his not-a-blog, which is something he, he runs personally, uh, he still maintains it. It was originally, I think, a live journal, if anyone remembers that old website. 
uh, before it was moved over. And he, he updates there very regularly. Uh, he kind of keeps his fans abreast of his, uh, his current uh, projects or um, just general thoughts about uh, modern-day events and goings-on. Uh, he's been writing for quite a while. Uh, I think uh, I read that his he was selling s- short stories as young as 21. Uh, I think he he had some stuff published in the old Galaxy magazine. I know um, he also did some teaching. Uh, he was an uh, I believe an English teacher, um, but he kind of I think. That was early in his career, I guess. He he'd again he had started uh, selling stories around 21. He was teaching around that same time frame. Eventually, though, uh, he did uh, stop teaching uh, and he started concentrating on writing full time. Uh, even though he he did enjoy it, but I think he just wanted to kind of kind of force himself to focus on what he felt the most passionate about. Uh, I think his first big hit was Night Flyers, which was a novella uh, in 1980. It was actually turned into a movie in 1987, which is actually, uh, it's kind of a cult, I wouldn't say classic, but it's got a cult following, definitely. Uh, And I I had seen it even before I had read A Game of Thrones. Uh, And I I had heard his name thrown around, but I didn't actually pick up the books until I had heard it had been... uh, or it was in the process of being turned into a show by HBO. And again, I had heard about the series a little bit before then, uh, so I, I picked it up, and I, I loved it. I, I fell in love with the world and kind of his writing style and kind of the world he had built specifically. Uh, I, I, I jumped in hard, basically. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen the show, uh, I would say it's about f- five and a half, of very good to great television, uh, and then uh, kind of an average half season, and then just some very blah stuff at the end, which is disappointing. Um, but don't don't take that kind of as a as a thing not to as a reason not to read or watch it. it it's well worth the time, I think, um, if you haven't done so already. Ah, now. Um, he also has done uh, the uh, it's Wild Cards. It's kind of an anthology series, uh, and he, he does a lot of editing for that. He has other writers kind of guest and include stories as well as, as his own in that series. Uh, that's very popular. I've read a few of them. Uh, they're, they're pretty good. Um, not my favorite. Just the genre itself is just a little kind of off-putting for me. Or not off-putting. It's just not something I really enjoy. Uh, that being said, uh, his uh, a lot of his sci-fi fantasy stuff has uh, a lot of horror elements, uh, kind of cosmic horror, uh, and I think Martin would definitely say that horror is something that motivates his writing. Uh, you can kind of tell that you know there are those kind of background elements that you know he kind of leaves some stuff open to interpretation. I think very strongly. Uh, but it's kind of um, kind of something to always keep in mind, uh, even if it's not something that's directly brought up as like a genre in Game of Thrones. There are elements to horror, or body horror, uh, psychological uh, horror in all of his works to an extent, some more than others. Ah, 
But let's kind of talk about the world of uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the planet itself that the, the kind of the story takes place on does not have a name. Um, I think there are some in the kind of the fandom and community that call it Planetos. Uh, I hate that name. <laughs> I think it's pretty stupid, but uh, it, it's one that's used a lot. So, uh, but uh, it is a fascinating world, even if it doesn't have a very good name. Um, in fact, a lot of the information that I'm going to be going over in this is actually from the World of Ice and Fire kind of world book. It's something that he wrote along with a couple of his fans and editors for the kind of uh, Song of Ice and Fire um, main, uh, website, wiki, maintenance people. Um, uh, I believe the names for them are uh, Elio Garcia and Linda Antonson. Um, they kind of, I think, help him keep track of some of the smaller details in his stories. Uh, because his his writing is very deep, and um, due to the time frame between different books in the series, um, he does occasionally kind of make changes or kind of um, refer to certain uh, things differently than in earlier works, which of course has led uh, as a kind of a long running series with some droughts between entries. Uh, there's a lot of fan speculation. And it has led to some um, very crazy uh, theories, uh, some of which, you know, are very interesting and some are just downright insane. <laughs> but uh, there was one, uh, I think Jamie Lannister, who is a character, uh, he's riding a horse. Uh, and in one book, it's male, and then magically in the next book, it's a female or vice versa, something like that. So that led to some very insane uh very interesting theories. I don't know how serious the people that came up with them were because sometimes people just kind of get bored in the fandom and they kind of <laughs> take it a little, you know, they either did it as a joke or they maybe seriously believe some of the stuff. Um, but, uh, yes, the series started in 96. Uh, the second book came out in 98. Uh, the third in 2000. Uh, the fourth in 2003. Uh, the fifth in... No, hold on. Yeah, uh, Game of Thrones 96, Clash of Kings 80, 98, Storm of Swords 2000. Yeah, Storm of Swords 2000, A Feast for Crows was 2005, and then A Dance with Dragons was 2011. Um, the next book in the series has not had a release date. Uh, he has released a few sample chapters online. Uh, but then I believe he's also rewritten a few of those sample chapters even since he released them. So there's no there's no telling when that next book's coming out. Um, and some fans have criticized, I think, Martin for his lack of output. Um, I think that's a little unfair. Obviously, uh, he doesn't owe anyone anything. He can work on what he wants to work on. Uh, and he does work on quite a lot. He may not be releasing books you know, every year that he's writing, he is working on a lot of different things. I would go far to go as far to say that he is actually a very prolific writer, and I'm sure he is working on *A Winds of Winter*. 
but he, I feel like he does kind of have a sense of um, uh, perfectionism uh, for kind of his work. So I feel like he, he probably is trying to get it perfect. Uh, and I, I respect that. So at least that's my feeling. I don't have any inside information on that. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like I prefer him to take his time and uh, get something, you know, tangible and worthwhile out. Which I'm sure it will be. Because, again, his, his stuff's always um, very well written. Even if I, you know, even if some of his stories, short stories, aren't my cup of tea, there's, there's no doubt that he has real skill uh, in it. Uh, but uh, back to kind of the world of Ice and Fire. So uh, you have uh, the main story takes place on the continent of Westeros, uh, and that is, um, I think Martin has kind of imagined it as being the size of, I believe it's South America is what I've read. Um, I believe that's an actual quote for him. Uh, it was in a transcription from an interview he gave but it wasn't on the actual magazine's website, so it was just like a quote that someone had posted in to a different uh, page. So it may not actually be factual, but I have seen it cited a couple of places. So um, a continent about the size of South America, give or take. Uh, and this world is also, uh, it's similar to Earth to an extent. Uh, climate's very... Uh, you know, there's nothing extreme necessarily about the climate itself. Um, it uh, it does have a very odd feature of the world, and that is that uh, the seasons are out of a standard length. Um, there is not a you know 365 day uh, calendar, or at least there. There is a calendar, obviously, and years do pass, and they are measured and things like that. However, the seasons do not occur regularly. Uh, so even though they have an ordered um, kind of progression around their sun, uh, the seasons never line up the same. There are years where there is no, no summer and years of very long winters. Uh, so that is a huge problem for kind of uh, human living and human life. Uh, and it is a mystery why this is the case. There is a number of theories. Um, Game of Thrones is not a world of high magic. There are definitely magical elements, um, or at least they seem to be magic. Uh, there could, of course, be a scientific explanation for some of the causes of this um of course that wouldn't be apparent to the people that live in the world they you know they have different theories there's a lot of in-universe speculation by characters which i enjoy um you can kind of see their reasoning for why they think things are the way they are and some fans have said that you know that makes sense and there are others that are like here's an actual scientific explanation of how this could be happening uh so that's always fun to read uh, i feel feel like you know, kind of works where people kind of sit around and theorize are always a little bit better than just stuff that's straightforward and spoon-fed. Uh, another factor is, uh, I would say, kind of the more 
I won't say cynical because I don't think it's cynical. I think it's more of a realistic world than uh, say something like, um, and this is probably, I hate to make this comparison because so many people do it, but kind of a comparison between Tolkien, J.R.R. Tol- uh, um, uh, Tolkien's work and George R.R. Martin. He's been called the American Tolkien. I don't think that's an apt comparison. Uh, not to say that he's not a very talented writer, but the kind of world he's built is very different than what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien did. Uh, and they, they definitely have very different styles. Uh, Tolkien's style is very, um, well, flowery, I think is a good term, but it's elegant. It's, it's very, uh, you know, it's meant to mirror a very old and ancient uh, style. Whereas Martin is, you know, he, he uses language that could be considered uh, old-fashioned, at least in A Game of Thrones. Uh, but it is more, I'd say more easily digestible. But that's not to say it's not deep. That's not to say his world isn't interesting or fun or, you know, what have you. Uh, but it is a very different world. And it is... Um, it doesn't have the depth in terms of um, development of you know why things happen, um, but again, that's that's not to say that it's not a good kind of universe to live and work in. I just feel like Tolkien had a much grander vision for what the world he built was, whereas I think George George's world is more of a kind of a reflection of our own. It's more of a realistic look at kind of life and death and power and politics. Whereas uh, Tolkien, I think, is trying to say something a little bit deeper about uh, human spirit and, well, life and death. So a little bit uh, a little bit more esoteric, um, maybe. It might be the right word. Or maybe not. I don't know. I, I'm starting to ramble a little. So I'll just get back. Uh, I'll do something on Tolkien eventually. But that's something I kind of want to have a lot of time for. So um, we'll just stick with the World of Ice and Fire right now. So again, uh, the Game of Thrones books take place mostly on the continent of Westeros. Uh, you can kind of think of it, even though its size is more South America, but kind of think of it as kind of an amalgamation of Europe. Um, you've got uh, the far north, which you could think of maybe kind of a Scandinavian or Russian or possibly uh, North German, at least in terms of climate, uh, kind of uh kind of uh location uh the people there they're not that it's it's very much kind of an english uh society that develops or you know more yeah like an english anglo-saxon type world uh at least by the time you get the game of thrones but again i'm not going to go into that um but you have uh westeros which again you have the far north uh, then you have uh, going south, it gets more to a kind of a temperate climate. Um, you have an area that is more uh, marshlands. Then you have a kind of a mountainous, rugged region. Then you have a very fertile uh, kind of multiple river valley uh, locations. You have a slightly hilly, not quite as mountainous, but um, very rich in uh, mineral resources. 
Um, there are some islands to the uh, west of Westeros. And then you go further south, you have uh, these large fertile plains. Uh, then you get to kind of um, more deserty, rocky, uh, dry areas. Uh, and then from there, you have to the east, uh, you kind of have a broken kind of bunch of uh, numerous sets of islands kind of linking uh, Westeros to another uh, continent that is known as Essos. Uh, so uh, Essos also has a uh, it's um, it doesn't go as far north as Westeros does. It, it it actually runs from west to east, whereas Westeros kind of runs south to north uh, with that kind of island chain that separates them. Uh, Essos. Uh, is about halfway up Westeros almost um, in terms from north to south. It just goes further. Now you have uh, Essos has a little bit more, I guess, diversity, you would say. It, it's kind of similar uh, where they share that sea. The narrow sea is what that's referred to. Uh, but as you go further east, you run into uh, much more Kind of a more fantastical world and that may not actually be factual in universe it could be that the fascinating people like uh, the seven or eight foot tall giants of a place called ling or you know the the people that ride uh, uh zebras uh or uh things like that these could just be stories that have been transmitted into the people living in Westeros, they could not be real, or they could be based on something, and it's just something lost in kind of a story. Uh, however, there are very real, factual, fantastic things uh, that have existed in the world. Dragons, specifically, uh, they are real, uh, and they do breathe fire. Uh, and there are other kind of unique creatures. Um, Westeros itself is or was home to giants and children of the forest who kind of I guess they're supposed to be kind of George's version of elves though they are not quite the same uh, El human society in Tolkien is a little bit mirrored on elvish society at least in terms of kind of how they developed elves are kind of in advanced civilization, they already have building ships, uh, metalwork, uh, jewelry craft, things like that. Whereas in Martin's world, uh, the elves kind of remain in nature. Uh, they're actually closer to what you might, the, the elves in the world of Glorantha. Uh, they are uh, very much in tune with nature. They live a very, uh, well, uh, primitive lifestyle, I suppose. But they do have aspects that separate them uh, in addition to uh, hunting animals they could also uh, control them to an extent uh, supposedly communicate with them and then of course uh, there is another race the race of giants and these are not the humans that are just seven or eight feet tall these are massive these are double that size uh, and in fact what i'm going to be talking about for the kind of this part is um this is a period of time 
that in the world is known as the Dawn Age. It's kind of the prehistory uh, of Westeros or Planetos or whatever. Uh, and it that kind of lines up well with what we've what I've been going over at least for our first couple of seasons. Uh, so you have the Dawn Age. This is where uh, the time frame's not certain. There are some uh, that say that this was around 40,000 years ago. Then there are some that say it could be anywhere as up to 500,000. Uh, they don't know. They don't have a way to measure that, at least not yet. Uh, though they do have a group that kind of practices, I guess, what you would consider science. Uh, that group is called the Macers. And we'll, we might go into that a little bit later, but uh, I just want to talk about the world. So in the Dawn Age, uh, humans are still living... Uh, a very primitive hunter-gatherer lifestyle. They don't have crops, they don't plow, they don't uh, grow anything, they just hunt animals, they don't control them, they don't ride them or anything like that. And the humans at this point are in Essos. Now, if that's where they originated, we don't know, but they're not in Westeros. Uh, the only thing in Westeros are the giants, uh, which again, these are these tall... Uh, strong creatures and the children of the forest who are diminutive. They are, maybe you might consider them like a pygmy, something along those lines, except maybe even shorter. In fact, I think it might be best to kind of consider them kind of a mix between possibly a hobbit or an elf, maybe. Um, but uh, that's just kind of a kind of a rough guess. Or maybe a, a gnome might be a better term if you're familiar with that D&D concept. Uh, but uh, the children of the forest live in, they prefer, of course, forests, hence their name. Uh, they like living in the, the kind of um, the green and deep woods, uh, whereas giants prefer mountains and hills. Um, they don't construct anything. There are no records of giant settlements, uh, but they live in kind of a small bands, and they prefer to dwell in caves or on hills. Uh, they do, however, bury their dead. There are very large uh, mounds and things like that spread throughout the world where giants are said to have rested. Uh, and there have been evidence, I think they mentioned that people had dug up sometimes artifacts from those kind of giant tombs. Uh, Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> so, yes, you have the giants and you have the children of the forest. They live in different areas, but there are tales of conflicts of them. Uh, but, however long after the Dawn Age, you do have uh, humans begin to advance and develop. Uh, the humans begin a migration from Essos. We're not sure why. There are a number of reasons that this could be. Uh, but they begin to move into Westeros from Essos. And at that point in time, there was actually a land bridge. Uh, now, the stories that they kind of tell in the, in the, uh, in the I guess, the, the present day in Game of Thrones universe, uh, basically says that the humans, as they're advancing into Westeros, they start to take over uh, the areas where the children of the forest live, and they start fighting the giants. And children of forests get together and they use a form of magic known as uh, green seeing uh, to kind of call up 
uh, what's called the Hammer of Waters to break this arm between uh, Westeros and Essos, hence why there are um, all these little scattered islands between and there is no direct land bridge anymore. Uh, but of course this doesn't stop the humans because they are able to sail as well and they are already there and they are more numerous than either the children or the giants. Uh, eventually uh, they begin to, they continue to multiply and to spread and they begin to um, overwhelm the giants through sheer numbers. Uh, the children of the forest likewise are not able to stand against them because during the time that this happens uh, humans learn how to use bronze and they of course are use uh, fire and bronze to kind of cut through um, the children of the forest who use just your standard stone and wood tools uh, and the children also use obsidian which is kind of a very special uh, material at least in world and as we've seen in our real world episodes obsidian blades are very valued they're transported even in very early human uh, ep, uh in human usage like we're talking 40 50,000 years there is evidence of people transporting obsidian between places uh, that do, does not have it because it is so sharp and so easy to fleck and kind of control but the children of the forest can do it at a level that of course is fantastical at least that's what's kind of remembered in world uh and obsidian is very important for a number of reasons which you should read the books and find out why uh, but eventually the humans uh either through uh sheer exhaustion or just because they uh, kind of interact with the children enough and they may be able to see that there is wisdom in how they live or you know they just get tired of slaughtering them uh, they eventually kind of make a peace with the children where these men uh, they adopt the children's gods um, which are carved into these weirwoods which are kind of very uh, white bark with very uh reddish uh, leaves and they even have red sap that kind of oozes out and makes them look like they're bleeding um, and that is the kind of the the end of what you would call the dawn age in Westeros uh, it this is known as the pact basically uh, men leave all the deep forests alone the children remain there and the humans take the plains and the hills and the mountains uh, because the giants have already been driven kind of close to extinction. They just exist in the very far north where it's very cold and most humans don't want to go. Um, now, uh, these are known as the First Men. Uh, you might consider them similar to... We talked about how um, the first uh, Europeans kind of sp spread off into separate groups, the Western and Eastern hunter-gatherers. Uh, they are, they're, they're fairly tall, taller than the, you know, the children of the forest. Um, but they, you might consider them kind of the same size as your standard, um, uh, ancient hunter gatherer, probably no more than, no more than five and a half to six feet. Like that would be the maximum. Uh, so 
They tend to be a little bit uh, shorter, uh, stockier though, well built. Uh, and they have, uh, generally speaking, black hair uh, and um, lighter skin. Um, but that can change, of course, depending on where they live. If they're in the south, of course, they generally tan a little bit more. Um, and in Esos, there are a number of different species, or I say species, there's a number of different humans. Um, uh, there are the Andals, who are kind of your Nordic, I guess you might consider them more Nordic. They have blonde hair, they're very fair-skinned, they have green and blue eyes. Uh, in the south of Esos, you also have the Roinar, who are very tan, they have coppery skin with darker, blacker hair. Uh, then you have further east, you have the Giscari, who kind of also have that same hair, but it might be better to think of them more as kind of a uh, Middle Eastern, whereas the Roinar, you might consider them more Mediterranean, like Southern, like Southern Italy or Southern Spain, kind of, uh, at least in terms of uh, complexion. Uh, but then south of the uh, the Giscari, you have uh, the Valeria Peninsula. This is home to a group of very pale-haired. Uh, in fact, their hair is silver, or sometimes it's referred to as liquid gold or platinum, things like that. Uh, and they have very unique uh, eyes, uh, colors. They can be purples, uh, occasionally blue, but purple, uh, violet, red is another color. Um, but they're not albinos, at least. Not all of them. I think there are one or two that are considered albinos later, but um, that's that's not either or there because there are albinos in other parts of the world. Um, but it might be best to think that think of West um, the world of ice and fire as a world inhabited by far more Homo species that survived and evolved. Um, think of the world where the Neanderthals did not die out or the Denisovans continued to exist uh, and they continue to intermarry and go back and forth. Uh, and that's one of the things I kind of like about it. it. It takes some elements of actual real life earth stuff, um, at least prehistorical stuff, and kind of imagines a world where maybe it was a little bit different and maybe it wasn't as straightforward. Um, there is also, to kind of go into the horror element, there is evidence, and it's not been confirmed, even in like the later books, but there is evidence of another group that lived in Westeros, and probably part, other parts of the world um, that we haven't visited, uh, that there is another species of uh, intelligent life on the planet. Uh, and these people built with inky black stone and uh, in kind of unknown ways and it shows up in just a few places um, but it's it's always considered old and ancient uh, and it, they are considered uh, possibly built by a group that lives beneath the waves uh, kind of a maybe a Cthulhu mythos type reference or Dagon I think is another HP uh, Lovecraft-esque fish monster people um, uh, but so far, there's only evidence of their their building, but just a little. Uh, on those islands west of Westeros, I mentioned there is also there was just a chair, a throne, 
just kind of carved on a rock. And then when the humans landed there, that was all they found, just this old sea stone chair. Where did it come from? Who knows? <laughs> um, but after the Dawn Age, you get to kind of a an age of heroes is what it's referred to. And this is kind of like the this is kind of like the time that we might consider um, that we're going into uh, the next time, where our myths and legends are probably based on at least some level of truth. Uh, we're going to get into that later, but this is where a lot of um, Westeros chase, uh, chase, um, traces their kind of stories, their earliest stories back to, after the Pact. Uh, they have uh, kind of the Age of Heroes where uh, you have the first men building uh, towns and castles and cities and, you know, founding kingdoms more numerous than, you know, probably a, uh, basically anyone that has any kind of uh, fort any day you could ride for seven days. That's probably it. the land. That's probably how many kings they are. So numerous kings and kingdoms, even though that's probably not what they were. Uh, and that's one of those things I like about the book. It kind of takes it. Um, you have this. Per, you have this. It's written as like an in-world uh, maester who is kind of their scientist, record keepers, uh, assistants, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they write it in very. You know, very interesting detail, and they go into all these things that's rumored to be. And then a little footnote, it's like, but that's probably not real because you know they didn't have these things yet. So, you know, all these kings and knights and stuff like that, they didn't exist yet. So they were probably just warriors or warlords. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of a letdown, but it's also it's something realistic, which I enjoy because that's kind of what I'm doing with this podcast. Honestly, um, maybe I was more influenced by this than I realized, but. Um, but after that, you have um, you know, the developments of these peoples uh, in both Esos and West, Westeros. Uh, you uh, then get to uh, an era known as the Long Night. This is a period where um, there's an insanely long winter, and it kind of covers the whole world. And we don't know what happens. Like, no one... No one knows for sure. They know it. They know it existed, but they don't know. There's a number of stories about how it ended, but not why. No one's really sure. Um, or at least, there. Everyone has an idea of why it ended, but they never go into detail in the books because it's always something like, "Oh, everyone knows that story," so they never really go into the detail on it, uh, which is always, I think, is great. Uh, so at least fans guessing sometimes you get this person that's about to go into a really detailed diatribe on something and then they're interrupted by someone coming in or like a fire getting started or something like that just something distracts them from actually giving uh, the reader the information that they're desperate for uh, Martin's very good at kind of pulling those last minute switcheroos and changing what you think you're going to learn into something else uh, that's one of his one of his better tricks, I think. He leaves you all these breadcrumbs, and then he comes in and just hits you with a sack of rocks at the last minute and gives you something completely different. Uh, it, it's it's a great it's it's a really great read. I cannot recommend this series enough. Ah, but that's kind of um that's kind of the setup to the world. Um, you have a very lived-in world with a few different groups of humans. Uh, and they're all kind of interacting with each, with each other. Um, and then you have 
these big momentous invasions that kind of lead to the you know to the further development in the world that you get to in the actual book series themselves after the long night you have the valyrians learn how to control dragons uh they found a an empire or a freehold is what they refer to it as kind of think of it as a early roman republic where there is not one leader uh, but there are those that control the dragons they're kind of the uh, the patricians the nobles they kind of share power amongst themselves and kind of this tenuous situations um, they found colonies similar to the Roman and Greeks, uh, as well as others, but th those are the main ones you kind of need to think of them as. Um, the Andals, uh, they are, as a result of the expanded Valyrians, um, they're, they're furthest away from the Valyrians because of uh, the Ronar and the Giscari, who are on the Valyrian borders, so they kind of develop their own thing. They have their faith of the seven, which is seven gods. Um, and then they travel to Westeros and they kind of upset the balance of the first men kingdoms and kind of establish their own. They take over in some places, intermarry in others, uh, and there are places, of course, they never are able to get. And this kind of leaves a very, um, it helps consolidate the kingdoms because they bring in a little bit more advanced technology. They have mastered the use of iron and steel, uh, as well as I think better horses and things like that. Uh, so they they kind of uh, consolidate a few of the kingdoms. They kind of um, basically cause a contraction in the numbers, an expansion of other states and uh, destructions of others. Um, and I would like to do, I think I'm definitely gonna do another episode on Westeros to kind of go into the more nitty gritty on that, but that'll be in the future. Um, but I think this is a good place to stop. So. I hope this kind of talk about um, World of Ice and Fire kind of gets you interested in the series if you haven't, um, or if you have, I hope it maybe reignites your passion. Um, I myself was a little burnout after the um, the Game of Thrones finale, and um, the the lack of word about the Winds of Winter, the next book, of course. Uh, so that kind of threw me off. I've I'd kind of cooled off in the series. Um, but after, I, for whatever reason, I actually reread, um, one of the novellas kind of set in an earlier period than the Game of Thrones. Uh, and then of course we had the, uh, House of the Dragon, which is the current series, which is a, a prequel to Game of Thrones. Um, as soon as that was announced and I saw the first episode, HBO has released it for free on YouTube. Um, so if you're interested in the world and you haven't seen it yet, go look it up. It's still there. And if you're really interested, I think, uh, episode seven or eight is actually going on as I'm speaking. I've only watched the first episode. I'm going to kind of binge it all at once. I'm tired of watching stuff week to week. So, um, I'll get to it. I might do a review on that at another point, but I think this is a good time to call it. This is a lot kind of, um, a lot longer than I was expecting to be. I was only spent about be 20, 30 minutes, but um, I went in a little bit more detail in some places than I thought I would, um, and not quite as much as some others. But again, that's some stuff we can cover kind of in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, next week I am going to have out the crop domestication episode. 
and I am going to do another kind of horse fantasy sci-fi story. Um, I haven't 100% decided what's going to be next week. There, there are two options I have that I, I'm still going back and forth about which one I want to do. Um, so I'll leave that as a surprise. But uh, you will have a real, live, actual history episode next time. So I uh, look forward to that. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening again uh, for anyone new or old. Uh, please feel free to send me any constructive criticism. I'll have my Twitter linked in the description of the episode. Uh, my email is waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also find me, I think um, I, I uploaded the, the podcast to a few new sites. Um, I think uh, Deezer uh, is new. I know there was an issue with Stitcher last week. Um, it didn't go up in time. I had to I had to put in a support ticket, but all my episodes are back up there now. I also have it added to the iHeartRadio uh, network. Uh, that's another app that you can find me on, as well as a few others. Um, but you know, obviously, you listen to where you have been listening. Um, so please feel free to again send me any feedback. Or any requests, perhaps, for another kind of um, fantasy sci-fi setting that you might like to see. Um, there's, it'll be a little break after October. Um, I know we've got next week and then the 23rd and 30th. So there'll be a few more of these before we move on back to, uh, I guess, Season 3. Um, at least in earnest, so... Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.